Welcome to the Breitbart News Daily Podcast, just the shorter version of the whole three-hour show that's available on SiriusXM, Patriot 125. Um, gosh, we did so much today. Uh, we, at 8 o'clock on the show, we talked in great detail about a lot of the woke stuff happening in our military. And as a bit of a preview, we talked a little bit about women in the military and took some amazing phone calls. It's tricky to put it all here because at 8 o'clock, we talked in more detail about the the culture of having women in the military and is that a good thing like what does that say about our american culture that we're like hey kill your baby so you can go to war women like what is that that was more at eight o'clock at at six o'clock the beginning of the show we talked more about the the practical aspect of having women in the military and is that wise took a ton of phone calls from 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 wonderful callers uh, that I don't think are in this podcast but you go go get the serious XM listen to the whole show you know but here's a little taste of that in the military and women in the military and the, the and women getting upset because there's transgender people in the military and people are like well should there even be women in the military and then we got uh the pentagon paying for uh, uh women's or no people's uh because everyone could get pregnant uh women's abortions in the military and there's this argument that the Pentagon is making that we need to kill women's babies in the name of military readiness, which is something I I never thought we'd ever talk about. But it does raise the question again, because it wasn't, it was only 20, it was either 2013 or 2015 that this was ever even allowed. So it's only been 10 years. I think it's worth a review over 10 years of should women even be in the military in certain roles that they're insisting they be in, right? It's one thing to have you know, nurses or whatever, right? But like next level combat role. Should we even have women? Heather McDonald, the great Heather McDonald, she wrote in the Wall Street Journal, she said in September 2015, the Marine Corps released a study comparing the performance of gender integrated, so with women, and male only infantry units in simulated combat. The all male teams greatly outperformed the integrated teams whether on shooting, surmounting obstacles, or uh, evacuating casualties. Female Marines were injured at more than six times the rate of men during preliminary training. Unsurprising, since men's higher testosterone levels produce stronger bones and muscles. Even the fittest women, which the study participants were, must work at maximal physical capacity when carrying a 100-pound pack or repeatedly loading heavy shells into a cannon. Ignoring the study, then Defense Secretary Ash Carter opened all combat roles to women in December of 2015. So so we're not even 10 years. I think we can uh, review what's happening here. And of course, when they allowed women in over just the next few years, they lowered the standards for everyone. So 36 women tried the Marine Infantry Officer Training Course, 36, only two passed. Here's how they're most washed out in the combat endurance test administered on day one. Participants hike miles while carrying combat loads of 80 pounds or more, climb 20-foot ropes multiple times, scale an 8-foot barrier. The purpose of the test is to ensure that officers can hump their own equipment and still arrive at a battleground mentally and physically capable of leading troops. Most female aspirants couldn't pass the test. So 
the Marine Corps changed it from a pass-fail requirement to an unscored exercise with no bearing on the candidate's ultimate evaluation. Isn't that amazing? But like, it's, we think, like you would have thought of country music, that the military is, would be the last bastion of not allowing any wokeness into it at all. Like, what, are you kidding me? But no, in many cases, it's, it's one of the first to embrace this stuff, which is wild. Because we've heard before of uh, schools, of course, lowering the grades. Even when I was in school. When I was in school uh, in, in New York State, when I was in high school, uh, it was a 65 to pass the regents exam, the end of the year test. 65, you had to get a 65. And then when I was on like uh, 12, 11th grade or 12th grade, they changed it to 55. And gosh, golly, wouldn't you know, more people passed. And then all the politicians say, oh, we're doing a great job. 10% more people passed the end of the They're like, well, you, you lowered the... So to take that mentality and put it into our military, it seems crazy. It seems impossible. But that's what they did. The weapons company Hike is now gender neutral, meaning that officers can hand their pack to a buddy if they get tired rather than carrying it for the course's full 10 miles. So we just lowered all the standards. For everyone, for women to get in, but also for the men that maybe wouldn't have made it. Now they're in. Super. But for women in the military, and I didn't mean to go on a whole rant here because we're going to talk more about it at seven. But uh, it's not just the physical stuff. It's how it changes group cohesion. You're going to take young men full of testosterone whose sole focus should be on blowing things up and killing people. And you're going to add a woman to that mix. What are you out of your minds? Are you out of your minds? I don't like making South Park references. I try to avoid them, although I could make one every day. But there's an episode where one of the girls, if you've never seen South Park, they're like second graders, cartoon with second grade. And one of the girls in the class uh, comes into the first day of school. Uh, uh, she's the first of the girls to develop. Let's put it like that. And she walks into the classroom and the boys are, are shocked. They, they say, hey, Guys, is there something different about, I think her name's BB or something. Bebe, maybe. Is there something different about Bebe? She looks different. Wow. She's so cool. I never knew how cool Bebe was until now. Guys, did you, did you realize how cool she was? Oh, she's awesome. She's so cool. And she'll say anything and they all, all the guys are laughing. They don't know why. And then later in the episode, the boys are playing normally with like the boys. And then she shows up. And they all start acting like monkeys. <laughs> and they're grunting and throwing rocks at each other. Like, like literally they turn into monkeys. Just acting like animals. When you, and that's, everyone knows when you add a girl to the mix, the dynamic changes. I can't even believe we're having this conversation. But we really have to because there's no more all-boy spaces anywhere. We, we've totally lost sight of how important it is to have an all-boys space. There's no more Boy Scouts. And it's great. Like there was a Boy Scouts and then a long time ago people were like, hey, there should be uh, girls and they're like, okay, have a Girl Scouts. And then we had a Boy Scouts and a Girl Scouts. But we couldn't do that anymore. For some reason that wasn't enough. Why did girls, when we have a Girl Scouts, need to join the Boy Scouts? You know, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like the transgender. It's like uh, boys, yeah, the men's room and the women's room. And then someone comes along and it's like, I'm neither. I'm both. It's like, okay, here's, we'll make a third bathroom. You can, you can use this bathroom. No, no, I must go into the women's. Like, Jeez, guys. Why do we accommodate these people? The answer should have been no. No, use the, use, use the bathroom 
You know what I mean? Now, girls, you're a girl, Girl Scout. <laughs> Quiet down. But no, we got to ruin everything. Got to ruin everything because of toxic masculinity. It's so bad. We're not even allowed to have, uh, we're not even allowed to give young boys a place where they can be with boys and properly channel that masculinity. We got to upend it with girls. And now the Boy Scouts are useless. Their membership membership has dropped 60% since 2019. And it's dropped 80% from its peak in the 70s. So it's been going down and now it's almost nothing. What a shame. But that's not even my argument against women in the military. We'll save that for eight o'clock. But we're bringing this up because the Democrats put in the omnibus spending bill, taxpayer money, so that women in the military can travel to different states in order to get an abortion. So if you're stationed in Alabama or some red state and you can't get an abortion and you got to go to Oregon, then uh, we'll, we'll pay for you. In the name of military readiness, we'll pay for you to go kill your baby. Women, kill your babies so you can be combat ready. How about that sentence? That's America today. Women, kill your babies. We'll pay for it. So you can be combat ready. Kill your baby so that we can send you on a deployment around the world to, to save us, to help us. Good night. And now, because the slope is always slippery, the big drama is that a female soldier was forced to shower with a transgender soldier. So a man, so a fe- so we, now we do this whole like, well, how, where's everyone going to shower? Okay, we got different showers. Uh, so now the, the now there's a man, a transgender man in the military who's who wants to use the women showers. It's not just your local YMCA where this is an issue. So the man is now using the women showers, and the female soldier is upset about it. What in the world are we doing? Unbelievable. Here, here's so we'll talk more about that today. Here's how weird. <laughs> here's how. <laughs> excuse me. I'm still sick. I can't laugh. The word, I like. I'm totally fine. Like I feel fine. I'm walking. Around. I, I. My voice is maybe a little grovelly or something. But I. I can't laugh. It's the worst thing about having this cough. <clears throat> Every time I laugh, like I, I can't. It's really annoying. Here's how weird things are. All right. So here's the headline. I read this headline yesterday. Ah, oh, where is it? All right, here it is. All right, here, check out this headline. Former child tracking, uh, trafficking, former child trafficking advocacy group spokesman writes Bloomberg hit piece on Sound of Freedom. Former child trafficking advocacy group spokesman, okay, former child trafficking advocacy group spokesman, okay, writes Bloomberg hit piece on Sound of Freedom. And I thought, oh, that's weird. A guy who used to be in this fight against child sex trafficking, used to be an advocate against it, is against the movie. Wrote a hit piece against against the movie that's also against child sex trafficking. That's weird. Maybe he wrote it because we talked a lot about this last week. Uh, The movie sort of paints the picture that child sex trafficking is only a problem in foreign countries and not in America, although it's a huge problem in America too. Um, so we talked about that. I'm like, that's, that's a valid critique. So I'm like, oh, maybe that's, that's what the guy's against. That's interesting. Let me read the article. So I read the article, and I'm, I'm even more confused. I'm like, wait, wait what's, that's, not, that's not what this, what, what's happening with this article? So I misread the headline. I had to go back up. I was like, wait, what? The actual headline? The actual headline was 
former pedophile advocacy group spokesman writes Bloomberg hit piece on Sound of Freedom. My brain couldn't comprehend that. I've never had that happen before. My brain read the word pedophile, pedophile advocate. <laughs> the word I read it. I read the word. I know what the word means. I read it and I read the word. I saw the word and it went into my brain and my brain tried to process it. Pedophile advocate. And like it couldn't, it couldn't do it. My brain, my brain was like, oh, that's not a thing. You, like, so it put it in, uh, like my brain was like, let's put it over here in the child sex trafficking victim advocate category. Surely that's what the headline meant to say, or there's no, there's no such thing as a pedophile advocate. It meant to say child sex trafficking victim advocate. So my brain put it there and I read the article and like, as if that was nope, pedophile advocate. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't know that's a thing, but of course it's a thing. This gentleman works to remove the stigma around minor attracted persons. Mm. This guy's a bit ahead of his time. Not by too much, not by too much, but a little bit ahead of his time. That's the ultimate goal of all of this. Just so you know, pedophilia is the ultimate. It's the, it's the end. It's the end. You know we've we've totally lost it when this is fully embraced. Hear me out here, and I'm not kidding. This is this is no joke. This is no exaggeration. John Nolte mentioned this in passing yesterday. We were talking about Disney and how Disney is like like Disney is in a horrific economic position. He doesn't think it can it can last. He thinks they they've put themselves in such a corner, Disney, that they can't get out of it now. He said it's like CNN. CNN has gone so far left that they've, they've lost all conservatives. They lost a lot of independence. So now they're, tr- they tried to go back in like more in the middle or more conservative, but we're not having it. So they're stuck on the left. But now, now that they're going more to the middle, the left lost the left are like, we're out. So now they got no one. So they're, they're and he thinks that's the same thing with Disney. They used to have everyone and then they alienated the right. So they're very far on the left. So now if they ever try to go back and make normal movies again, we're like, mm, we're out. And then the left is like, why aren't you have more transgender? So they, they got, they, they've screwed the whole thing. They got nothing left. Disney, they're totally, they totally box themselves in a corner. And John Nolte doesn't think he can get out. But anyway, the ultimate goal of the left, these advocates, is to queer everything. They want to queer every aspect of society. This is a word they use all the time. Q is the most important letter in LGBTQ. Most people don't realize that. The goal is to take everything that's normal everything that's traditional, everything that's ever been worth conserving as conservatives and queer it. I mean, it's just turn it upside down. It includes movies, cartoons, children's books, school curriculums, you name it. All of it that was normal, got to make it queer. All the way down to the normal, traditional, sexual relationships between adults. We need to queer them. Not just ma- you know, male, female, that's what that ship sailed, but the most divergent thing, the most taboo, the most sexually unacceptable, and therefore the thing that most needs to be brought out of the shadows and into the light and held up at parades and put on a flag are pedophiles. Because who are you to say why that's wrong? That's their answer to everything. Says who? Now, we, we have always had an answer for that. Conservatives, especially in a country founded on Judeo-Christian principles, we've always had an answer. But they question that, everything. Who are you to say? Says who? Who are you to say? Who are you to say that's wrong? 
And they're going to try that on the ultimate perversion. And as Alfred Kinsey said, kids are sexual beings. That's what he said. And if kids are sexual beings, then kids have sexual feelings and they have sexual desires and they have sexual needs. It's coming. I assure you, I assure you it's coming. Talk to this uh, pedophile advocate. <laughs> like, what? Tell me why it's not coming. Tell me why it's not. Of course it is. It's the queering of everything. But anyway, I share that just that's how bizarre things are. <laughs> I, read, I read a headline and I thought, well, that I didn't even think. I, I didn't even actively think, well, that headline's wrong. It just automatically, my brain was like, nope, reject. Can't, can't be a thing. Let's go back. I'll, let's end on the military again. This is Senator Tom Cotton. Short clip is stunning. As you said, that's part of a three-minute ode to abortion, uh, you know, calling it a sacred obligation to provide abortions. You know, John Kirby is not talking about, you know, some airman who's in Guam and discovers a rare but treatable cancer. Of course we bring that person back and pay their expenses to get treatment in America. He's talking about elective abortions. And the, the Democratic Party has such skewed priorities that the policy of our military is now that they're going to pay pay 15 days of leave, not charged against your annual leave and your travel and your lodging and your meals so you can go get an elective abortion. But if your mom or dad dies, you get to take leave out of your own 30 days of annual leave and you have to pay all your expenses. That's the Democratic Party's priorities. Well, it's pretty wild. Also, if you, if you have to get an abortion or if you have to get transgender, whatever then you can avoid being deployed as well. This is a huge problem for our military. This is a massive problem. This, not even just this one particular issue, it's all of it. This hit me a while back. I forget when it happened. Maybe during all like the anti, like defund the police stuff. I asked on, on my show, I said, are there any police officers listening now? And would you recommend that your children go into the profession and the calls are just everyone's like nope no way I was like oh wow that's that's bad with our military 75% of the young men in this country are ineligible to join the military 75% are uneligible ineligible of the ones that are remaining who don't have face tattoos and have an IQ over 80 how many of them even want to join the military that's a very small pool of people and every military recruiter will tell you, and I'd love your insight if you are one, that's a very small pool of people who would even want to join the military. And now, and now you've made the military almost unjoinable to those people. You've made it so woke. You've made it so sexual harassment training seminar. Trans, like pregnant women getting abortion. It's such a mess. Even the people who could join why, why would you want to join that club? That sounds like a terrible place to be. I've heard so many police officers whose dads and grandfathers are police officers say that they don't want their kids to join the police force. I've heard doctors say that you know, their, their dads and grandpas were doctors. Like do, being a doctor is what we do. Like we're, that's, we're the Smith family. We're doctors. And they wouldn't recommend their kids go to med school just because it's all, it's, the whole thing's just so broken. It's a major problem. When the good people in our institutions thinks it's so bad that they wouldn't let their kids join the profession, that is huge because we are losing institutional buy-in. Check this fact out. 60% of veterans under the age of 40 have an immediate family member who served. And among new recruits, 30% have a parent in the military and 70% 
have a family member, uh, have, a, have a, some other family member in the military. So 30% of a parent, 70% have some other family member in the military. That is incredible considering less than 1% of Americans have any military, have joined the military. So a vast, vast, vast majority of people in the military, it's a family affair. And it's a very small amount of people. If you alienate that small group of people, which is the source of our military, we are in big trouble. You got no one left. There's no one left to join. And maybe that's why Democrats have proposed plans for immigrants to serve in order to get citizenship. Venezuelans, that may be all we're left with. Anyway, I didn't mean to go on a huge rant like that. <clears throat> Let's take a break. Uh, we take your phone calls if you'd like, 866-95-PATRIOT, 866-95-PATRIOT. If you are that military recruiter, if you can give any insight into that, if you're someone in the military and you're like, mm, nope, not, not having my kids join, it's not what it used to be. It's not worth it. Oh, what a terrible thought. Back to Breitbart News Daily. I don't like to use the term smoking gun. It's overused. But this interview with Rand Paul felt like that. It felt like they have a thing that's important. And there might be some accountability for ones on something for someone. <laughs> that's, I think that's why I got excited. It's like, oh, maybe one time someone will be held accountable for a thing. That's exciting. Here's Rand Paul. Senator, how are you, sir? Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to talk to you. How's your dad doing? He's doing great. Uh, he's going to have a birthday this month. He'll be 88. Nice. He still does an interview program uh, every day of the week and stays very active. That's awesome. Wonderful. Glad to hear. Um, how much does Tony Fauci not care much for, for old Rand? You know, I think that when you look at it, at first, when I first encountered him in March of 2020, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I thought he was a disinterested public health figure. But every encounter I've had with him and every interaction I've seen with him, I've grown more and more to believe that he is a dishonest individual who served to, from the very beginning, cover up his responsibility for the pandemic. And, you know, the evidence out this last week that uh, he wrote a summary of a phone call from February 1st, 2020. This is when they're just beginning to look into the pandemic. And in that email, he basically says, yes, we're suspicious that this could be a manipulated virus wow. because it came from a lab in Wuhan where they do gain-of-function research. And he describes the research. Well, this directly contradicts everything he said in committee hearing to me, denying absolutely that they funded any gain-of-function and it absolutely is a lie. That's why we ended up referring him again this week to the Department of Justice mm. for prosecution for lying to Congress. Oh, jeez. Uh, okay, that's a serious thing. So what? Well, I got, we got to get into more detail then. What specifically did that email say, and who was it sent to? This was a uh, – so that's, from the very beginning, the end of January 2020, they're getting the news out of out of China that there's a pandemic starting. There's an exchange of emails between Anthony Fauci and uh, – half a dozen prominent international virologists. And these emails go back and forth, and some of them go to three in the morning. And as he's frantically going back and forth with these emails, 
these virologists from around the world are saying they're looking at the genetic sequence of, of uh, COVID-19, and they find that there are some striking, strikingly unusual characteristics of it that make it look like it's been manipulated in the lab. And so these this band of close virologists that are his close buddies, and these are all people who have been proponents previously of gain-of-function research, creating viruses that don't occur in nature through experimentation, they all tell him it looks manipulated. So they have a phone call on February 1st of 2020. All these people decide what to do. What do we do? What, you know, what should we do in the investigation of where this thing came about since it looked like it may have come from a lab? So he summarizes the phone call about a day later. And it's in an email that they have never released to us that then finally was obtained uh, through Freedom of Information Act and through the House involvement through threat of subpoena. These are things I've been trying to get at for two years now, but they've refused to give us. They get an email, and it's Fauci doing a summary, about a paragraph or two summary by email to everybody and to other members of government summarizing what went on in the phone call. And basically he describes the worry among all these virologists, himself included. He's not a virologist, but he also has worry, and his worry that it looks like it's been manipulated, and this is especially suspicious because we know they do gain-of-function research in, in Wuhan, and he describes the research. But the research he describes, when you look up the actual journal articles when they were published, lists an NIH and or, and or an NIAID, which is the agency with NIH that he ran, they list grant numbers. So we have proof that basically he funded this research, and now we have proof that he acknowledged that it was gain-of-function wow. research. Well, okay, compared to... What has he told you, and, and under oath? Well, when he came to the lab on two separate occasions, and we gave him a chance to correct the record under threat of perjury, uh, he said unequivocally, we have never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan. And it's basically a lie in his own words now. We also wow. have email exchanges early on in 2020 between his assistants. So on the first day in late January 2020, when they're telling him what's going on and that his assistants have done a sort of a search to see their NIH's involvement, they tell him, here's a paper, and they send him a journal article about some Wuhan research on bat viruses. And in it, his assistant in the subject line of the email says, gain-of-function research in Wuhan, and then he says, you know, this is stuff we funded. But then one of the assistants says, I don't understand this because it never went through the committee that's supposed to scrutinize gain-of-function. And this is where the real culpability comes in. They set up a committee in 2017 because there would already been a decade-long debate about this research being dangerous and potentially wiping out civilization with creation of viruses that are deadly, that are specifically made to be more infectious in humans. So anyway, they set up a committee, and it was supposed to review dangerous research. But what ended up happening is this research in Wuhan that they funded through NIH funds with Fauci's approval never went to the committee to be scrutinized for safety. They went around the committee with his approval. The only way you can avoid the committee is you have to have the head of an agency's approval. But we haven't gotten the paper trail yet because obviously if there's a piece of paper signed with Anthony Fauci approving avoiding the, the safety committee, um, obviously that will be incredibly damning. So we'll see if we get to that eventually. I'm hoping wow. the House's subpoena power eventually will find that. But that's ha that had to be what happened because – Otherwise, this should have gone before the safety committee, and then we'd have a chance that they would have uh, seen how dangerous this was and prevented our money from going over there. Uh, this is a huge deal. I'm getting very excited about this, Senator. So um, 
what about some wiggle room here, right? So let's say you confront him on this again, and he says, oh, Senator, you just don't understand. There's different types of gain of function. There's this type. There's the other type. We were talking about this much less severe. This is a little, it, it's not even really gain of function. Uh, and that you, you just don't understand, Senator, what we were talking about. What is that? This has been sort of his argument all along, and actually it's gone so far as to the, them changing the definition so in between two of the exchanges where I accuse him of funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan, they actually took down the definition from their website sure. and changed it. Yep. So they, they have tried to define away the problem. The other thing they've tried to say is that it only counts as gain-of-function research if it's a human virus. They uh, say, okay. well, if it's a bat virus, that infects bats, so we won't count that as gain-of-function. But here's what they do is they take two different bat viruses that are coronaviruses that they find several hundred feet under underground in a cave. They take the viruses out, and then they combine them together, but then they test them to see if they will infect human cells. So they actually have mice that have humanized lung cells. So to all appearances to the virus, they're attacking a human cell, but it actually grows inside a mouse. What they do is they combine two viruses make a brand new virus that doesn't exist in nature, and then test it against human cells. But what they find is that many of the stuff wouldn't infect humans, and now it will. Now that they've created a new virus, they've actually created something that will. Worse than that, they sometimes run it through. It's called serial passage. They keep running it through an animal, and they select out for what infects. So if I have 100 virus particles and I give it to a mouse, and only one of the particles has a mutation that will infect the mouse, I let it grow in the mouse, take it out, and do it again. If I do it over and over, what I do is I push natural selection towards selecting towards things that grow in human cells. Wow. And you can actually, through sort of artificial natural selection, create viruses that will infect humans. Many people think this is what happened because normally viruses that come from animals are clunky. They don't infect mm -hmm. humans very well, and they infect the animals better. When COVID-19 showed up, the species that it was most contagious in was humans. It wouldn't infect bats any longer, and they haven't been able to find uh, an animal reservoir that looks like it is infected by yes. COVID. So strangely, this, uh, this virus was already pre-adapted for humans. This is part of the evidence that people think it was manipulated in lab, so it would be more infectious to humans. Of course. Senator, I could talk about this forever. I got a minute, one minute here. What do you want? What do you want to happen to Anthony Fauci? It's really not so much about Anthony Fauci, even though he's the focus of a lot of the culpability. It's about trying to have new rules so taxpayer money doesn't go to dangerous research. There is a possibility that in the laboratory they could create a virus that could wipe out half the planet. There are viruses that already have 50 percent mortality. If we don't stop doing this, we're going to one day create something far worse than COVID-19, and that's the end point for me. We're going to have to pass legislation to prevent taxpayer funding of this kind of research. It is shocking how often deadly pathogens leak from labs. And if you just Google USA Today lab leak and then minus COVID, so you take out all the results that have COVID in it, back in 2016, USA Today did a ton of research on how often this happens. Hundreds of times a year, deadly pathogens uh, leak from labs. Without question. It's, it's actually not that unusual to have lab leaks, and we should be very concerned about it. All right, 30 seconds. What have you learned about human nature in this whole COVID process, and, and especially everything you've been doing with, with Fauci and the rest? I think what's important is people think that a conspiracy is a cabal of people running their hands together mm -hmm. gleefully, evilly, trying to kill mankind. It's not that way. They think they're doing something that's good. It gets away from them. 
but now they have the natural inclination to cover it up. So this isn't just Fauci. This is hundreds of people throughout our government, and they are trying to cover up the trail of U.S. funding of this. And so that's why it's been so hard to get records. We've been trying for two, two and a half years to get records from the Biden administration. And they fight us not because it's an evil group of people running their hands together and cackling. What they are are people who made mistakes. And really, yeah. many of them were there in the Trump administration, too. They're not a political appointees. They are the perpetual existing deep state, if you yeah. will. Yeah. And they're there and they're trying to protect their turf and they're pr- trying to protect themselves from culpability. Senator, I'm encouraged by your perseverance. Keep it up, sir. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Breitbart News Daily. We had so many wonderful guests today and topics and callers. It was great. Rand Paul was here. Um, I want to play this interview for you of Chris Rufo, who's amazing. Manhattan Institute. He's got a new book out. It's so important for us to understand where all this wokeness comes from if we want to undo it. We all want to undo it. We all want to fight against it. We all want it to stop. But what is it? <laughs> what is it? You can't fight against it if you can't name the enemy. That's what Chris Rufo's book is all about, and that's what our conversation was about. Chris, awesome to talk to you again, man. It's great to be with you. I've uh, made this comment for a long time, and I'm curious, although your title maybe gives it away, but uh, that I, I've made the statement that there are no cultural institutions left in America that are controlled by conservatives. And I'll throw that out there, and I'm like, listen, I want there to be one, so name one for me. And people will say, well, NASCAR, no. Uh, country music, no. <laughs> we see you know, Jason Aldean's song today. Uh, people are like, the military, are you kidding me? We just talked about the need to kill babies to send women to war, right? So is there an AM radio? People are like, but what about AM radio? It's like, no, uh, Soros is buying up AM radio stations in Miami, right? So what do we got? Is there anything, is there any high ground? Is there any last bastion left? You know, I would say Hillsdale College uh, yeah. is certainly something that is uh, uh, still controlled by conservatives, a, a great institution, but you know, there are something like 3,000 colleges in the United States, and we have one Hillsdale. Um, so it's really the exception that proves the rule. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, one thing I've loved this whole process, and you've been such a major part of it, is seeing how we got here. And p- so many wonderful people like you have been able to trace back, and be like, oh, this philosopher and this uh, whatever, like Kinsey, like this sex f- fiend <laughs> or whatever, like all these guys, how they contributed to how we got here. Um, is there one in particular that you think is has been overlooked by conservatives to kind of help us make sense of where we are right now? Yeah, it, 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 absolutely. And I think it's really important. If you, if you have a problem, it's important to understand its origins. Not that you can go back into the past and change it, but you can at least have a better understanding of what you're up against. Yeah. So in the book, I actually profile four of these, what I think of as prophets of the radical left that have had a huge impact over our societies in the past 50 years. Uh, Herbert Marcuse, the new, ne- new left philosopher, Angela Davis, who of course was uh, put her philosophy to, 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 to the test uh, as a kind of communist revolutionary in the 1960s. Uh, Paulo Freire, a Brazilian Marxist whose ideas are uh, the most important ideas in all of our education schools, meaning mm. his ideas influence how teachers teach in K-12 classrooms. And then finally, Derek Bell, the godfather of critical race theory. And 
the basic argument of the book is that all of the all of the bad ideas that you see having captured the institutions yes. today can really be traced back to these four figures. Love that. I love how these all came from somewhere. If you want to untie a knot, you got to you know, right, look at the knot. So let's pick, let's pick one of those. Let's do Friere. I know the least about him. And, and so I want to ask about him, but then also it's one thing for some lunatic, even if they have a lot of influence, to come up with crazy ideas. But how are they successful in spreading their ideas? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people with crazy ideas all the time. And even people of influence who have a lot of crazy ideas. But how did these guys get successful at it? But so that'll be the end question. But who, who's Paulo Freire? Yeah, Paulo Freire is probably the the least known, but in some ways he's the most important figure. He was a Brazilian Marxist. Um, he was a pedagogist, meaning uh, a theorist of how to teach. And his whole philosophy of teaching was um, how can we teach in order to awaken a Marxist revolution? How can we shape the consciousness of children? Um, towards these political objectives. And um, he was unsuccessful around the world. Uh, he actually led the education systems um, in, in countries and consulted in, for the education systems of the revolutionary governments in Africa and Latin America. These were Marxist-Leninist governments. Wow. Um, he abysmally failed to teach any literacy uh, in these places, but he was really a master propagandist in the classroom. And even despite the fact that he failed all around the world, his ideas took root in the United States. Um, you know, the country that was in some ways least likely to, to have a communist revolution, um, but actually most susceptible to these ideas. And today, Paulo Freire is the number one most assigned book in all teacher training colleges. Come on. Um, and he's the, the third most cited author in all of the social sciences. I mean, he is kind of the invisible master of, yes. of how American schools operate, how they teach. Um, but, but at the end of the day, when you look into his history and his biography, he was a bloodthirsty, blood-soaked man um, who, who didn't seem to care how many people died um, and how few people learned basic literacy as long as it advanced his politics. Is it, is, was his deceit in what is taught or how it's taught? Mostly the how. That's a really good question. And, and, and his whole philosophy was, in some ways, um, could be applied anywhere, universally. It wasn't about the specific building blocks of teaching. It was about a method. And his method was what he called conscientization. And so what that means is creating uh, the consciousness of oppression and then creating the consciousness of liberation. And so he, he, his theory was to teach people the basic literacy skills by teaching them that they're oppressed and then teaching them how to get out of it by teaching them about revolution. The problem, of course, is that if you're, if you know, teaching people how basic literacy at, at mass scale is actually not easy, it's difficult. Um, and if you prioritize politics, you're not prioritizing literacy. And so what he ended up creating was a bunch of uh, angry, alienated, um, anxious, and violent uh, populations that were that we're ready to revolt. And I think that's what we've seen, at least in certain segments of our society here in the United States today. Mission accomplished. Um, all right, this, uh, I, I'm so encouraged by what I read. Uh, I read it, it was an excerpt in uh, First Things. And I was like, oh, I read this. I was like, I gotta, I gotta get the book. Uh, so bear with me if I read this paragraph. The Soviet dictator, Joseph Stalin, raised his glass to a group of artists. And this has been the theme of the week we talked about. Music, movies, books, all week long. 
uh, assembled at the home of famed writer Marks, uh, Maxim Gorky in 1932. The production of souls is more important than the production of tanks, he said, examining that the communists desired not only to remake the world of politics and economics, but to reshape human nature according to the dictates of left-wing ideology. And so I raise my glass to you, writers, the engineers of the human soul. One of my great discouragements of the conservative movement for the last many years, and I was a part of this, um, is not talking about the soul ever. Uh, and I remember I talked to a, a famous psychologist, and uh, I said, you know, how does this so-and-so affect the soul? And he goes, oh, we don't deal with the soul. <laughs> I was like, wait, hold on, you're a psychologist, yeah. study of the soul. And he's like, yeah, we don't, we, don't, we don't deal with it. He's like, I can tell you how it affects the brain. I'm like, okay, but that's way less interesting. Can you talk about the soul? Why is it important? Why does? Yeah, why do they want? I, I think, it, yeah. And so, well, I mean, they want to capture it. I mean, because this is a, um, you know, a, a Marxism was designed in many ways as a substitute for religion, something mm-hmm. that would take over for religion. And so they needed to have a theory of the soul. They needed to have a theory of human nature, and their theory of human nature was that human nature could be changed through con- through the conscious application of politics. And so they believed that uh, they could mold human beings into something totally different with their ideology. Um, I, of course, take the opposite position. I don't think that you can do that. And I think that as the Marxists have tried to do that in the 20th century, it was an utter disaster. But but in some ways, if you look at it as conservatives, um, you have to, in, in some ways, respect the ambition of their project. Um, conservatives don't even talk about these things anymore. I think they're too embarrassed to speak about it. About the soul, about faith, about uh, first principles—you um, know, first things, uh, as the magazine uh, is called that you read—and and and I think we have to get back to that because ultimately that's what people want, and I think especially young people, you know, they want to have the, the those deepest questions answered, and if we don't even attempt to answer them, um, they're going to fall for uh, all of the kind of you know uh, ankle deep answers, uh, mm-hmm. but but at least. Uh, at least they're getting something from the left. Um, and so I, I think that, that the reason I included that little anecdote was to, to show that and also to show that, I mean, what is more horrible than engineering a human soul? I mean, it's it's like you can imagine t- taking power tools and chipping away at somebody's soul. It's mm. actually kind of a horrific a horrific image, um, even though they meant it as kind of a compliment. Oh, that's so good. Tom Chris Rufo, the book is called America's Cultural Revolution. Go buy it right now. It just came out. Um, so I remember years, so I love how you give, you gave, um, like credit or whatever to, to, to Marxism. Like you, you understand, you give it its due. And I say, because I, I remember years ago I was reading, uh, Thomas Sowell's critique of Karl Marx and, uh, and he said something like, uh, I'm so grateful <laughs> for Karl Marx because I wouldn't be the person I am today without it. And it's like, what? And I think uh, Milton Friedman said the same thing about um, uh, Keynes. He's like, I'm so grateful for Keynes because I wouldn't be the man I would. And it's like, oh, wow. These guys understood the gravity of, of what they were up against. And I think you do too. That these aren't just guys who are like, overthrow. They, they, they were trying to do something, as you said, very ambitious to reshape human nature. That's profound. And we need to meet that. And we just haven't met it. We haven't met it well. Does that make sense? What I'm saying here, like, and and so how do we meet the foe in front of us 
uh, properly. Yeah, I, it, it makes it makes total sense, and I, I think there's actually a, kind of a, uh, a, a you know a thousand pound answer that's our, at our disposal, and, and for some reason uh, we don't use it anymore. But you know, in, in the West, we've had a, a two thousand year religious tradition that had a very elaborate theory of the soul, and whether you're mm. a Catholic or a Protestant. Um, 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 you know, the dominant faith in the West and Europe and the United States, um, you know, we, we, we had an answer. Uh, I think, mm-hmm. you know, the, if you talk to priests or pastors, they, they still have an answer. Um, <laughs> and, and we actually need to take some of that moral foundation out of the religious sphere and into, the, into public life again. We need to have uh, an answer. And, and I don't think that it requires, and I think the reason that we conservatives don't speak that language is that the the moral majority style 80s 90s political christianity the kind of bible something um uh is 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 the rhetoric from from that era the pat robertson kind of stuff doesn't hold water it's not persuasive it's kind of um it's kind of embarrassing uh mm. in, in in many ways um but i think that there's a better way to do it and i know someone that i listen to quite a bit is um, bishop uh, Robert Barron, uh, the ca- Catholic bishop of diocese outside of Minneapolis, um, and, and and he's engaging with the culture in, in, on a, in a spiritual way, um, but but also talking politics. And so, you know, you, you, the the church itself doesn't participate in politics directly. Obviously, that's 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 uh, you know good in some ways, uh, but but certainly people have to have you know, and especially teach their kids something. If you don't teach your kids, uh, you know who they are and 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 why human what human beings are, um, you're going to let some green-haired, uh, you know, lunatic uh, come out of the teaching schools and 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 shape your kids' uh, uh, consciousness, yeah. starting in kindergarten with nothing uh, to, to compete with it. And so I, I think those kind of questions, those theological, uh, philosophical, metaphysical questions, are really important that we answer. Yeah, we can't just stop at politics. That's that's not even close. It's something, but it's not it's not even close to the thing. Uh, one argument I've tried to make, and maybe I, I need to do better than this, is um, try to describe our Judeo Christian uh, culture that we've had for hundreds of years and, and longer than that before America, and and say something like, "Listen, you don't have to uh, believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died for your sins. Like I, 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 that'd be great, but like you don't have to." But you need to know how you've benefited from a culture that did. I think I think that's something. So if that's true, what would you say is 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 one benefit that we take for granted, have taken for granted, in our culture that was founded on Judeo Judeo Christian principles? Well, I, I think we had a moral consensus that had a vision of of freedom and equality, um, and, and that had never been attempted before in practice to such an extent. And we also had a moral consensus that kept our society together. We had, you know, strong families, strong communities, strong, uh, you know, strong sense of faith. And and you don't have to be, a, you know, a professed Christian to participate in this culture. Yeah. M- many of the founding fathers, if not most of the key founding fathers, were not, you know, Christians uh, in a sense. They were deists, meaning that they believed in, in God, but they believed in God almost as a Kind of a clockmaker or or or, or, or other metaphors, yep. Yep. They, they weren't you know card-carrying Protestant Christians uh, in the sense that we think of of Christians today, and yet they had a deep respect for, a reverence for, um, a support of those Christian churches and institutions because they saw that they served 
not just a spiritual function for the, for the believers, people who are in the, in the pews every Sunday, but they serve the social function for everyone, including the non-believers or the agnostics or the deists or the people of other uh, uh, faith backgrounds, you know, who, who didn't number very many at the time, but, but were still there. And so, you know, I, I, would, I would suggest to folks who are, who are not Christian, I mean, uh, you know, check out your Catholic Church for sure. But, but if, if, you, if you're not Christian, at, at least, you know, consider having an appreciation for the kind of the non-religious benefits, the secular benefits uh, of, the, of the churches in the West. It's part of our history. Um, it's part of the reason our society works. Um, and if we abandon it altogether, um, I think our society will, will fall apart. Wow, we are. Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. Grateful you're here tomorrow. Well, as I'm speaking right now, uh, Emma Jo Morris, our Breitbart politics editor, is speaking in front of Congress. So that's awesome. Can't wait to uh, go over all of her testimony and everything that happened there. Uh, that'll be all over Breitbart.com. And then also to wrap up the week uh, at the end of tomorrow's show, uh, Alex Marlowe, the editor-in-chief, of course, will be here. So I hope you can be there for that as well. Spread the word. <laughs>